We're going through the book of Matthew. Uh, We're in chapter 20, verse 17 uh, through to 36. I'm following on from what uh, Paul and Richard have previously uh, spoken on in this section from um, chapter 19 uh, through to where I am now. Um, I want you to think about the world that we live in. I want you to think about it. It's a, um, a competitive world, isn't it? Um, I know at schools they teach you not to be competitive or try or have been trying to make it so that uh, children don't feel left out. But in the real world, um, when we watch the telly, in politics and in business, we know that it's cutthroat, don't we? We know that if you stand still for long enough, then you're going to be pushed out of the way. You're just going to be shoved out of the way because someone else wants the glory. Someone else wants to be prime minister or anything else that's involved. You know, if you're in business, you've got to be competitive in your pricing. Because if you're not competitive in your pricing, the next company is going to take what you want. It's a cutthroat environment. And it wasn't any different back in the Bible time. It was exactly the same then. With the Israelites with the Gentiles, with the Romans, it was, you, you stand your ground, you, you don't take any rubbish if you want to move on. It's the same today. Things don't change. And if we take a look at our own hearts, we realise that we actually live in this I-first world, don't we? And actually we are part of that I-first world. Um, you, I don't know if you remember the advert for Rolo. That last Rolo, who do you give it to? Me. Yeah, Richard. It was exactly the same. I first. You know, why would I give away my last Rolo? They're so nice. Oh, I miss chocolate. I'm not allowed to eat it anymore. Never mind. Anyway, that's distracting. But in the last few um, weeks, we're in, Richard and Paul have been leading us through Matthew and and we've seen that the, the uh, disciples have got this I-first attitude. We look back, uh, and Richard was telling us about uh, the, the rich guy that came along and asked Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And he says, look, go and sell all your riches. And he didn't want to do it, did he? He, he felt, oh, he didn't want to give that away. That, that was his status. And the disciples said, well, hang on a minute, we've given everything away. What do we get? They had this I-first attitude. And then Jesus goes on and he tells the story that we saw last week with Paul about the the farmer who goes out to find labourers. And those labourers are the first lot he finds. He he promises them a denarius for one day's wage for, for them to go out and pick the vineyard. And then he goes out at different times and until the last ones he picks is an hour of work time, but he pays them exactly the same. And I resonated with that one because I remember working um, on site and having my train the person who was training me earning hundreds of pounds a day and me on fifty pounds a day and actually he sat in the office and I earned his wage and mine. And that resonated with me. But we saw, Paul showed us that actually, who are we to question God's generosity? 
the farmer being, being God, the picture of God, who are we to, pick, uh, to question God's generosity? He can give to who he wants with his own. And actually, it is just a blessing to be given by God in the first place, isn't it? And then we come to this passage. We're coming um, now uh, into this section. And today, we're going to look at verses 17 to 36, like I said. And once again, we're going to see the disciples. We're going to see them with this eye-first attitude. They want the glory. They haven't grasped the message that they've been told so far. They haven't grasped it. They want the glory. But I think Matthew's got something better for us than just looking at the glory. Matthew writes his book so that we get Christ. And uh, hopefully we're going to go through these two stories that are narrated by Matthew, and we're going to look and see the parallels between them, and hopefully see what I believe Matthew's intention is that we get from them as well. Now, Richard, I believe you've got the slide. Okay. I'm, I pray that this slide doesn't distract from um, me speaking. Um, so I'm not too great with slides and, and all of this sort of stuff. So, but um, I'm trying to draw a parallel for you. So we have uh, in the first story, the first section, um, we have the two disciples. We have their request. Oh, we have two disciples plus mum. Sorry, plus mummy. Um, we have their request. We have the indignant ten. And then we have Jesus' response. And then that's in the first, so verses 20 to 28. And then verses 29 to 34, we have... Um, the, blind, the story of the blind men. Richard, can we have the next one? So we have two men again. We have a request again. We have a rebuking crowd. And then we have Jesus' response. But the difference here is we also have the men's response to that. What we're going to do, hopefully, is we're going to go through those two. And I'm aware that I'm missing out the first three verses that we've read so far as well, about Jesus' prediction of his death. And we're going to come back to that. But we're going to look at these, uh, the two disciples. Look, they, so verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus and, with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, they've just been taught about God's generosity, and he will give according to who he wants to give. They've also been told that they're going to sit on 12 thrones. Each apostle is going to sit on a throne and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet, you've got to admire their mum. She wants to look out for her children. But they're coming and they're asking Jesus, make me better than the other ten. Put me in a greater place of authority. Give me more glory than the other ten. They have this I-first attitude that we've been talking about. Their request is a bold request. 
It's a very bold request. We're talking about Andrew and uh, James and... I can't even get my name. Anyway, we're talking about two disciples. My mind's gone blank. Um, and they come up and they say, look, we want to be right next to you while you're ruling. We want to be your chief advisors. This is no small request. And I think it shows the heart of where they're at. They haven't really grasped the teaching that they've had so far. They know who Christ is, but they don't know what he's bringing in, the kingdom that he's bringing in. And he says to them, he says, you do not know, verse 22, you do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you are asking. And then they think they do. Because he says there, Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Notice their statement, we can. They think they know what they're asking for, but in their hearts, really, what they're asking for is glory. And then we have the indignant ten. They are very, very upset at these two disciples asking that they would be able to be better than them. I think, if we're honest, that would be us as well, wouldn't it? That, uh, you know, if you're in a group and then two are singled out to be better than you, then you'd really find that hard work, wouldn't you? But these indignant ten, they're, again, cross because they don't want to be last. They're not cross because the two have asked a question that shouldn't have been asked. They're cross because they don't want to be last. They don't want to be lorded over. So Jesus calls them over and he says, come on, you lot. Come on, all you 12, sit down. Well, I think actually they're walking, but he's talking to them. He says, look, let's have this discussion. Let's get this out of the way. Because you haven't heard what was said in the last few, my last story. Because the one that Paul looked at last week and he talked about the farmer in the vineyard, it was packaged between two verses. The first will be last and the last will be first. And they haven't grasped it, what Jesus is saying to them. They haven't grasped what he means. So he takes them and he puts it in their language of the day. And he says, look, the Gentiles, they lord it over each other. We can see this where he says it in verse uh, 25. Jesus called them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the high officials exercise authority over them. He says, look, look around you. Look what desiring glory makes. It makes a cutthroat environment. An environment where no one is at peace, no one is at ease with each other because they've got to watch their backs. And he says, look, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now, if you notice, that is more or less, it's a slightly different wording, but it's the same as the first must be last and the last must be first. 
He's just changed the way it's said. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, at this point, Jesus is responding to them that he's saying, he's, he's putting it in a hole, you know, he's trying to wrap it up and bring it to a, a place where actually maybe they'll understand it. Look around you, see what it's like. You don't want to be like that. If you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, if, I, if you want to know what kingdom I'm bringing in, you cannot be like them. Because it does not bring about what the kingdom of God is about. But I've missed a couple of verses. I want to just draw attention to them because it's been something that's been um, bothering me while I've been looking at this. It's an aside note, really. And uh, maybe it's worth discussing on Tuesday night if we get the chance. But it says the, the mum comes and she asks that, um, that the, his, her sons be granted these two positions of power. And he says that you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. And uh, they think they do. But he says, look, you will drink, you will it to these two disciples. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup and sit at the right. uh, But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. I want to touch on them because in a lot of the reading that I've been looking at, to look at what this passage says. People have grabbed hold of that and said that actually, you know, in order to be in a high place, in a high position in heaven, you must serve each other. If you want to be high in heaven, then you serve and you become the lowest here and it will give you what you want in heaven. I do not believe that is what this passage is saying. I do not believe it at all. And I want to clear that up. I think what we need to do is look at it in context of the passage that has gone before where Paul showed us last week that it is up to God who he is generous with. It is not by our merit that we inherit anything in the kingdom of God. It is by the grace of God and his generosity alone. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples, he's saying, look, you cannot influence what God will choose. You cannot influence anything that will happen in the kingdom by doing what you think will make you better. Because it is up to God to do with his property, with his kingdom, what he wills to do. And it is only by his generosity and by his grace that you have anything in the first place. And I just wanted to clear that up because lots that I read and lots that I listened to in the sense of trying to just get through that, was actually, I was quite upset by the amount of times I heard that this is how you get good in the kingdom of God. That isn't the case. What it is, I feel, is that actually Jesus is telling us that God is so generous. Delight in his generosity and know that even though you don't deserve it, he's got a place for you in heaven. Now, moving on, we're going to go to the next story. So we have the two men, two blind men. And they are there, 
sitting on the side of the road as Jesus and the crowd walk away from uh, leaving uh, Jericho. Verse 29, uh, the two blind men are sitting there on the roadside. And then when they hear that Jesus is coming, they start shouting. They start shouting, Lord, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, I don't know if you know much about the blind, blind people back then, but they would have been considered low. They could not earn their own wages because they could not work. They would have possibly been thought of as people who are being punished because they have sinned or their parents have sinned. So they would be considered by the crowd, the rebuking crowd, as worthless. They would have sat there and they would have been trampled on as they begged for food, for money to eat. And they're shouting at the top of their voices to to a king, son of David, the line of David. They're shouting, Lord, have mercy on us. And the crowd are like, ha, you think he's got time for you? You see what the crowd are doing? They're putting themselves in a status position. They're putting themselves higher than the, than the two blind men. They're saying, look, we're worth more than you. And Jesus, well, he hasn't got time for you. But Jesus says, what can I do for you? What is it you want me to do for you? He comes and he takes his time to speak to these the people, the, the crowd think is low. He says, what can I do for you? And they say, we want to see. You notice their, their, question, their request is totally different to the two disciples. They want to see. Now, I have um, a blind sister. Young, my youngest sister is blind, Philippa. She's married to a blind guy, Will. They have two beautiful children that can see. But my sister, Philippa, some of you will have known her when she visited St. Nancy Evangelical. She has a, her testimony is that uh, she loves Jesus and she cannot wait to see him. She cannot wait whether he comes again before she dies or whether she dies and sees him. The first thing she's going to see, the first person she's going to see is Jesus. And that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful testimony. But I hope it brings the light into light, these two blind men. They're sitting there at the side of the road and they hear all this commotion. And they hear that this, this great man is walking down the road and all they want to do is see him. Their request is, I want to see you, Jesus. Make me see. And Jesus has compassion on them. He touches their eyes. And they see him. And they follow him. So we have two blind men with their request to see. The rebuking crowd who are saying, look, you're not worth anything. Just stop it. And then we have Jesus' response that he takes time and he sees them and he touches them and he blesses them with sight. And their response, the men, they follow him. Now, you know, if we stop there, we can draw so much out of this passage just from that, just from looking at this and just comparing it with ourselves and our own hearts. But we're not going to stop there because Matthew doesn't stop there at all. In fact, we've missed out a few verses, 19, uh, uh, 17 to 19. 
we miss out those verses because I believe that uh, Matthew has, can I have the next slide? Sorry. He has, oh, sorry. I missed them two on the slide. There you go. I told you I'm no good with slides. So the request was for glory um, and for sight. And um, then we have Matthew's intention for his reader. I believe these two stories are trying to pull us in so that we can actually see more than what is just there. You see, the two blind men, they want to see Jesus. They want to see this man that's walking past, who they believe to be the son of David. Well, who is the son of David? He's the Messiah that is promised, isn't he? As well. But I want to draw your attention as well to the way that Jesus talks about himself. Can I have the next one? See, Jesus talks about himself as the son of man. So in verses uh, 17 to 19, if you follow with me, it says, Now Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And then at verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now in this we're looking and we see that Matthew's trying to get across that the disciples hadn't grasped the first must be last and the last must be first. Or it is better, you need to serve. Uh, I need to get that right, don't I? Not so you instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Matthew's trying to get across that, you know, the, the disciples haven't realised what's going on. They haven't understood it. But then we see Jesus acting it out with the blind man. We see that actually he, who is the first, acts it out and becomes the last in the crowd. Do you notice what happens? I don't know if you kind of can picture this. The the crowd are there. They're telling the blind people to shut up. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, no. Hang on a minute. And he gives them sight. And the focus becomes from Jesus to the blind men. And what has happened. And Jesus becomes, well, obviously they're, they're probably a little bit enamoured by the fact that he can give the sight in the first place. But actually, the focus is shifted from the, from the people who were last becoming the people who were the first. I find that amazing because, you know, we often bypass some of these things in the story but that Jesus lowers himself to their level. He touches them, and then they receive sight, and they jump for joy, probably. I I know I would. And uh, I think Matthew's trying to get us to see that, actually, look, there's more to this. You see, Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, and he acts out the servanthood as he gives the sight to the blind. Now, and he wants you to draw these two things together and say, well, actually, hang on a minute. Doesn't Isaiah talk about the Son of Man being the suffering servant? In Isaiah 53, 
Let me read to you a few verses. I'm reading from um, uh, the NIV reader's version here just because I think it helps with us being able to grasp it a little bit better. And it says in verse 4, it says, I'm going to read through verse 4 to 11. It says, he suffered the things we should have, should have suffered. He took on himself the pain we, that should have been ours. But we thought God was punishing him. We thought God was wounding him and making him suffer. But the servant was pierced because, he, because we had sinned. He was crushed because we had done what was evil. He was punished to make us whole again. His wounds have, been, have healed us. All of us are like sheep. We have wandered away from God. All of us have turned to our own way, that I first way. And the Lord has placed on his servant the sins of us all. He, has beaten down, he was beaten down and made to suffer, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led away like a sheep to be killed. Lambs are silent while that wool is being cut off. And in the same way, he did not open his mouth. He was arrested and sentenced to death. He was taken away. He was cut off from this life. He was punished for the sins of my people who among those who, among those who are living at that time could have... Un- Sorry. Who among those who are living at that time could have understood these things? He was given a grave with those who were evil, but his body was buried in a tomb of a rich man. He was killed even though he hadn't harmed anyone and he had never lied to anyone. The Lord says, it was my plan to crush him and cause him to suffer. I made his life a guilt offering to pay for sin. But he will see his children after him. In fact, he will continue to live. My plan will be brought about through him after he suffers. He will see the light that leads to life and he will be satisfied. My godly servant will make many people godly. Because of that, he will accomplish. Because of what he will accomplish. He will be punished for their sins. You see, verse 28 in our passage, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It's no coincidence that the, uh, the, the prediction of Jesus' death is there in this passage because what Matthew wants you to look at is the fact that actually Jesus knows where he's going. And in fact... He knows he's going to die, and he knows why he's going to die. He's doing it because he's going to be the picture of complete service. He's going to die on the cross to show that actually he has come to die for you, for me. He is going to show us that he is the picture of the servant who lowers himself so low in order that we might be raised into life. Now, in this uh, third prediction in Matthew, um, it's a bit expanded on the other two. He says here that they will, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teacher of law, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Here, we see that Jesus is going to be handed over, not just to his own people to be, 
to be crucified, but to the Gentiles as well. And including this, Matthew is actually showing us here today that we are included in this. That we are guilt, just as guilty as putting Christ on the cross as those who were there. And he's done, in that, we can see that we are part of the many that are going to be saved. It's no coincidence how Matthew writes this. He wants you to see that the Son of Man, the one that Isaiah talks of, the one who is the suffering servant, is Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what it's like to be in the kingdom of God, it is better to serve than to be served. Look at Christ. Look at Jesus, the Son of Man, who is the one who ultimately suffered and took on the punishment that we bear, should have borne. And he took it to the cross. And he died in our place. But not only that, I want you to see as well. Uh, sorry, can I have the next slide, please, Rich? That we see the son of David is called out as well. The blind men, when they call out, they call out for the son of David. Jesus tells us that he is the son of man. And then the blind men tell us that he's the son of David. Now, we should be drawing all of this together. And we know that the son of, the son of man is the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about. But also that the son of David is, is the, the promised king in the covenant. God said to David that there will be one from your line who sits on the throne forever. And Jesus is of that very line. He is the future king, the promised king that will sit on the throne forever. He is the one who actually should be bowed down to at this point. He's the one that they should all be bringing their uh, the gifts to and, and bowing down and saying, how can we serve you? Yet we see in this, in this story that Jesus, the king, serves those who are lower than him. Matthew's intention, I believe, here for us to see is that if we want to know what the kingdom of God is like, and if we want to know how uh, the kingdom of God is ordered, well, we look to Jesus. We see that actually he gave his life for us. He suffered on the cross for us. He served in the ultimate way of all service could be given. So that we can serve others and reflect it. Heaven isn't about a hierarchy. It is about love for one another. It is about realizing that if God, the Son of God, can look at us and have pity on us and be generous with us and love us and show us mercy and grace. When we have put on him our sin, when we have caused the reason for him to have to die in the first place, when we have disobeyed God beyond compare, if he can come and serve us, then as people of the kingdom, we need to serve one another. Matthew's intention, I believe, is to show us Christ. To show us, to lead us back to the one who is bringing in this kingdom. And this kingdom is not like what we're living now. This kingdom 
is a kingdom of love and compassion, of generosity, of grace and of mercy. And the one who is going to rule in that kingdom, who is going, is the one who sits on the throne, who is worthy of all praise, is Christ. Is Jesus Christ. Why? Because he died in our place. Because he deserves it more than anyone else in this world. Because he is the one who has shown us what true service is. Now, the question remains, what is the focus of your heart? When someone else gets the opportunity before you do, what's in your heart? When you see Christ, what is in your heart? The blind men wanted to see Jesus. That is what I'd love for you today, is to see Jesus for who he is. What he has done. Are you someone who wants the glory? Or are you one, someone that wants to receive the generosity of God in Christ Jesus? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that we know of you. We know that you are generous, you are loving, and you are kind, and we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, that he is the suffering servant in our place, but he is the king as well, that he is the king who brings about the kingdom in which we can serve one another, and we can love one another, and we can know Christ more. Show us Christ, we pray. Amen.